Section 18 of The Theory of the Leisure Class. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tracy Datlin. The Theory of the Leisure Class by Thorstein Veblen. Chapter 8 Industrial Exemption and Conservatism. The life of man in society, just like the life of other species, is a struggle for existence, and therefore it is a process of selective adaptation. The evolution of social structure has been a process of natural selection of institutions. The progress which has been and is being made in human institutions and in human character may be set down broadly to a natural selection of the fittest habits of thought and to a process of enforced adaptation of individuals to an environment which has progressively changed with the growth of the community and with the changing institutions under which men have lived. Institutions are not only themselves the result of a selective and adaptive process which shapes the prevailing or dominant types of spiritual attitude and aptitudes, they are at the same time special methods of life and of human relations, and are therefore in their turn efficient factors of selection so that the changing institutions in their turn make for a further selection of individuals endowed with the fittest temperament, and a further adaptation of individual temperament and habits to the changing environment through the formation of new institutions. The forces which have shaped the development of human life and of social structure are no doubt ultimately reducible to terms of living tissue and material environment. But proximately for the purpose in hand, these forces may be best stated in terms of an environment, partly human, partly non-human, and a human subject with a more or less definite physical and intellectual constitution. Taken in the aggregate or average, this human subject is more or less variable chiefly, no doubt, under a rule of selective conservation of favorable variations. The selection of favorable variations is perhaps, in great measure, a selective conservation of ethnic types. In the life history of any community whose population is made up of a mixture of diverse ethnic elements, one or another of several persistent and relatively stable types of body and of temperament rises into dominance at any given point. The situation, including the institutions in force at any given time, will favor the survival and dominance of one type of character in preference to another, and the type of man so selected to continue and to further elaborate the institutions handed down from the past will, in some considerable measure, shape these institutions in his own likeness. But apart from selection, as between relatively stable types of character and habits of mind, there is no doubt simultaneously going on a process of selective adaptation of habits of thought within the general range of aptitudes which is characteristic of the dominant ethnic type or types. 
There may be a variation in the fundamental character of any population by selection between relatively stable types, but there is also a variation due to adaptation in detail within the range of the type and to selection between specific habitual views regarding any given social relation or group of relations. For the present purpose, however, the question as to the nature of the adaptive process, whether it is chiefly a selection between stable types of temperament and character, or chiefly an adaptation of men's habits of thought to changing circumstances, is of less importance than the fact that, by one method or another, institutions change and develop. Institutions must change with the changing circumstances, since they are of the nature of an habitual method of responding to the stimuli which these changing circumstances afford. The development of these institutions is the development of society. The institutions are, in substance, prevalent habits of thought with respect to particular relations and particular functions of the individual and of the community. And the scheme of life which is made up of the aggregate of institutions in force at a given time or at a given point in the development of any society may, on the psychological side, be broadly characterized as a prevalent spiritual attitude or a prevalent theory of life. As regards its generic features, this spiritual attitude or theory of life is, in the last analysis, reducible to terms of a prevalent type of character. The situation today shapes the institutions of tomorrow through a selective, coercive process by acting upon men's habitual view of things and so altering or fortifying a point of view or a mental attitude handed down from the past. The institutions, that is to say the habits of thought, under the guidance of which men live, are in this way received from an earlier time, more or less remotely earlier, but in any event they have been elaborated in and received from the past. Institutions are products of the past process, are adapted to past circumstances, and are therefore never in full accord with the requirements of the present. In the nature of the case, this process of selective adaptation can never catch up with the progressively changing situation in which the community finds itself at any given time. For the environment, the situation, the exigencies of life which enforce the adaptation and exercise the selection change from day to day, and each successive situation of the community in its turn tends to obsolescence as soon as it has been established. When a step in the development has been taken, this step itself constitutes a change of situation which requires a new adaptation. It becomes a point of departure for a new step in the adjustment, and so on interminably. It is to be noted then, although it may be a tedious truism, that the institutions of today, the present accepted scheme of life, do not entirely fit the situation of today. At the same time, men's present habits of thought tend to persist indefinitely, except as circumstances enforce a change. These institutions which have thus been handed down, these habits of thought, points of view, mental attitudes and aptitudes or whatnot, 
are therefore themselves a conservative factor. This is the factor of social inertia, psychological inertia, conservatism. Social structure changes, develops, adapts itself to an altered situation only through a change in the habits of thought of the several classes of the community, or in the last analysis, through a change in the habits of thought of the individuals which make up the community. The evolution of society is substantially a process of mental adaptation on the part of individuals under the stress of circumstances which will no longer tolerate habits of thought formed under and conforming to a different set of circumstances in the past. For the immediate purpose, it need not be a question of serious importance whether this adaptive process is a process of selection and survival of persistent ethnic types or a process of individual adaptation and an inheritance of acquired traits. Social advance, especially as seen from the point of view of economic theory, consists in a continued progressive approach to an approximately exact adjustment of inner relations to outer relations. But this adjustment is never definitely established, since the outer relations are subject to constant change as a consequence of the progressive change going on in the inner relations. But the degree of approximation may be greater or less depending on the facility with which an adjustment is made. A readjustment of men's habits of thought to conform with the exigencies of an altered situation is, in any case, made only tardily and reluctantly, and only under the coercion exercised by a stipulation which has made the accredited views untenable. The readjustment of institutions and habitual views to an altered environment is made in response to pressure from without. It is of the nature of a response to stimulus. Freedom and facility of readjustment that is to say, capacity for growth in social structure, therefore depends in great measure on the degree of freedom with which the situation at any given time acts on the individual members of the community. The degree of exposure of the individual members to the constraining forces of the environment. If any portion or class of society is sheltered from the action of the environment in any essential respect, that portion of the community or that class will adapt its views and scheme of life more tardily to the altered general situation. It will in so far tend to retard the process of social transformation. The wealthy leisure class is in such a sheltered position with respect to the economic forces that make for change and readjustment. And it may be said that the forces which make for readjustment of institutions especially in the case of a modern industrial community, are, in the last analysis, almost entirely of an economic nature. Any community may be viewed as an industrial or economic mechanism, the structure of which is made up of what is called its economic institutions. These institutions are habitual methods of carrying on the life process of the community in contact with the material environment in which it lives. When given methods of unfolding human activity in this given environment have been elaborated in this way, the life of the community will express itself with some facility in these habitual directions. The community will make use of the forces of the environment for the purposes of its life, 
according to methods learned in the past and embodied in these institutions but as population increases and as men's knowledge and skill in directing the forces of nature widen the habitual methods of relation between the members of the group and the habitual method of carrying on the life process of the group as a whole no longer give the same result as before nor are the resulting conditions of life distributed and apportioned in the same manner or with the same effect among the various members as before if the scheme according to which the life process of the group was carried on under the earlier conditions gave approximately the highest attainable result under the circumstances in the way of efficiency or facility of the life process of the group then the same scheme of life unaltered will not yield the highest result attainable in this respect under the altered conditions under the altered conditions of population skill and knowledge the facility of life as carried on according to the traditional scheme may not be lower than under the earlier conditions but the chances are always that it is less than it might be if the scheme were altered to suit the altered conditions the group is made up of individuals and the group's life is the life of individuals carried on in at least ostensible severalty the group's accepted scheme of life is the consensus of views by the body of these individuals as to what is right good expedient and beautiful in the way of human life in the redistribution of the conditions of life that comes of the altered method of dealing with the environment the outcome is not an equable change in the facility of life throughout the group the altered conditions may increase the facility of life for the group as a whole but the redistribution will usually result in a decrease of facility or fullness of life for some members of the group an advance in technical methods in population or in industrial organization will require at least some of the members of the community to change their habits of life if they are to enter with facility and effect into the altered industrial methods and in doing so they will be unable to live up to the received notions as to what are the right and beautiful habits of life. Any one who is required to change his habits of life and his habitual relations to his fellow men will feel the discrepancy between the method of life required of him by the newly arisen exigencies and the traditional scheme of life to which he is accustomed it is the individuals placed in this position who have the liveliest incentive to reconstruct the received scheme of life and are most readily persuaded to accept new standards and it is through the need of the means of livelihood that men are placed in such a position the pressure exerted by the environment upon the group and making for a readjustment of the group scheme of life impinges upon the members of the group in the form of pecuniary exigencies and it is owing to this fact that external forces are in great part translated into the form of pecuniary or economic exigencies it is owing to this fact that we can say that the forces which count toward a readjustment of institutions in any modern industrial community are chiefly economic forces or more specifically these forces take the form of pecuniary pressure such a readjustment as is here contemplated is substantially a change in men's views as to what is good and right 
and the means through which a change is wrought in men's apprehension of what is good and right is in large part the pressure of pecuniary exigencies any change in men's views as to what is good and right in human life make its way but tardily at best especially is this true of any change in the direction of what is called progress that is to say in the direction of divergence from the archaic position from the position which may be accounted the point of departure at any step in the social evolution of the community retrogression reapproach to a standpoint to which the race has been long habituated in the past is easier this is especially true in case the development away from this past standpoint has not been due chiefly to a substitution of an ethnic type whose temperament is alien to the earlier standpoint the cultural stage which lies immediately back of the present in the life history of western civilization is what has here been called the quasi peaceable stage at this quasi peaceable stage the law of status is the dominant feature in the scheme of life there is no need of pointing out how prone the men of today are to revert to the spiritual attitude of mastery and of personal subservience which characterizes that stage it may rather be said to be held in an uncertain abeyance by the economic exigencies of today than to have been definitely supplanted by a habit of mind that is in full accord with these later developed exigencies the predatory end quasi-peaceable stages of economic evolution seem to have been of long duration in life history of all the chief ethnic elements which go to make up the populations of the western culture the temperament and the propensities proper to these cultural stages have therefore attained such a persistence as to make a speedy reversion to the broad features of the corresponding psychological constitution inevitable in the case of any class or community which is removed from the action of those forces that make for a maintenance of the later developed habits of thought it is a matter of common notoriety that when individuals or even considerable groups of men are segregated from a higher industrial culture and exposed to a lower cultural environment or to an economic situation of a more primitive character they quickly show reversion toward the spiritual features which characterize the predatory type and it seems probable that the dolico blonde type of the european man is possessed of a greater facility for such reversion to barbarism than the other ethnic elements with which that type is associated in the western culture examples of such a reversion on a small scale abound in the later history of migration and colonization except for the fear of offending that chauvinistic patriotism which is so characteristic a feature of the predatory culture and the presence of which is frequently the most striking mark of reversion in modern communities the case of the american colonies might be cited as an example of such a reversion on an unusually large scale though it was not a reversion of very large scope the leisure class is in great measure sheltered from the stress of those economic exigencies which prevail in any modern highly organized industrial community 
The exigencies of the struggle for the means of life are less exacting for this class than for any other, and as a consequence of this privileged position, we should expect to find it one of the least responsive of the classes of society to the demands which the situation makes for a further growth of institutions and a readjustment to an altered industrial situation. The leisure class is the conservative class. The exigencies of the general economic situation of the community do not freely or directly impinge upon the members of this class. They are not required under penalty of forfeiture to change their habits of life and their theoretical views of the external world to suit the demands of an altered industrial technique, since they are not, in the full sense, an organic part of the industrial community. Therefore, these exigencies do not readily produce. In the members of this class, that degree of uneasiness with the existing order which alone can lead any body of men to give up views and methods of life that have become habitual to them. The office of the leisure class in social evolution is to retard the movement and to conserve what is obsolescent. This proposition is by no means novel. It has long been one of the commonplaces of popular opinion. The prevalent conviction that the wealthy class is by nature conservative has been popularly accepted without much aid from any theoretical view as to the place and relation of that class in the cultural development. When an explanation of this class conservatism is offered, it is commonly the invidious one that the wealthy class opposes innovation because it has a vested interest, of an unworthy sort, in maintaining the present conditions. The explanation here put forth imputes no unworthy motive. The opposition of the class to changes in cultural scheme is instinctive and does not rest primarily on an interested calculation of material advantages. It is an instinctive revulsion at any departure from the accepted way of doing and of looking at things, a revulsion common to all men and only to be overcome by stress of circumstances. All change in habits of life and of thought is irksome. The difference in this respect between the wealthy and the common run of mankind lies not so much in the motive which prompts the conservatism as in the degree of exposure to the economic forces that urge a change. The members of the wealthy class do not yield to the demand for innovation as readily as other men because they are not constrained to do so. This conservatism of the wealthy class is so obvious a feature that it has even come to be recognized as a mark of respectability. Since conservatism is a characteristic of the wealthier and therefore the more reputable portion of the community, it has acquired a certain honorific or decorative value. It has become prescriptive to such an extent that an adherence to conservative views is comprised as a matter of course in our notions of respectability, and it is imperatively incumbent on all who would lead a blameless life in point of social repute. Conservatism, being an upper-class characteristic, is decorous, and conversely, innovation, being a lower-class phenomenon, is vulgar. The first and most unreflected element in that instinctive revulsion and reprobation with which we turn from all social innovators in this sense of the essential vulgarity of the thing, so that even in cases where one recognizes the substantial merits of the case for which the innovator is spokesman, 
as may easily happen if the evils which he seeks to remedy are sufficiently remote in point of time or space or personal contact, still one cannot but be sensible of the fact that the innovator is a person with whom it is at least distasteful to be associated, and from whose social contact one must shrink. Innovation is bad form. End of first part of chapter 8